Well, good morning again. It's really terrific to be back here at Wiley Baptist Church. Uh, when we were here with you guys last year, we thought this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us to visit Hawaii and visit uh, such a friendly church, and we had a great time. And then, lo and behold, uh, Nolan reached out, and here we are back again. You guys are such a friendly church. You guys have a great team of volunteers here that, that come and just are so eager uh, to serve, the, serve this body in ways that may not always go uh, noticed. You guys are a really friendly church, and we've, we've had a delightful time with you guys this weekend. So when Nolan uh, very kindly invited me to come back uh, this weekend as a Waterhouse uh, Lecture Series speaker uh, to have a conference on the theology of work, I thought, what a great guy. And moreover, what an, what an incredible opportunity this will be to reconnect with my good, good friend, Matt Sanders, who used to have an office next door to mine, who's a great pal. We'll get together, we'll talk. He'll try to trash talk me about college football, but please, I'm an LSU fan, and well, anyway, his team isn't. But when Matt heard that Nolan had invited me to come back uh, this weekend, apparently he thought, what an amazing opportunity this will be for Cheryl and I to go to Fort Worth, Texas, where I'm sure Keith isn't going to be. So I'm not really sure. Uh, Stacy assures me this was just a coincidence, but I got to tell you guys, frankly, I'm skeptical. I don't think Cheryl would do something shady like that, but I think we all know Matt well enough to know he would. Uh, but anyway, really it is truly an opportunity, a great opportunity, an honor for us to be back here at Wiley Baptist. Yesterday, uh, a little after lunch, we wrapped up what I think was a terrific conference, two-day conference on the theology of work. We talked about an important but often overlooked emphasis in Scripture on the value that God has uh, and, and uh, has put on work. He is himself a worker. He has invited us to be not just observers, but indeed participants in his purposes. And one important way in which our lives are integrally connected to God's purposes through our, our work and through our working lives. This is connected up with the, the notion of vocation and calling. And although it is commonplace in our culture, and here I think we have to admit that the Christian community is hardly distinguishable from culture, at least on this issue, it's commonplace to associate work with drudgery and just a toilsome and trying experience. We, day after day, hour after hour, week after week, month after month, just on and on, work, work, work. And it's easy for us to think about work as something that's a necessary evil, but that is quite the contrary of the picture we see in Scripture of work and of really the blessing that it is for us to be created to work. Sometimes I find that Christians think work is part of the punishment for a sin. They think that in Genesis 3, 15 and, and uh, through 17, when, when Jesus is, when God is uh, announcing the punishments, the curses that are pursuant to our sin, we see that work changes, but I think a lot of Christians mistakenly read that to mean that work is now a punishment, something we are going to be forced to do the rest of our lives, and we wouldn't have to do this if we hadn't sinned. But that is not what the scriptures say at all. And it was great this weekend to be able to carefully and slowly unpack Genesis 1 and 2, where we meet God who is working and find that he's created us in his image, and we're given to think that this is importantly tied to our being created to work. So our work is in fact a gift. It's bound up with the image of God. It's part of what we were created for. 
we have an opportunity, we have an invitation from God to contribute to the common good of our, of our fellow man, to our communities. And it's more, in fact, it's more than an invitation. I think we, in fact, have a Christian duty to contribute to the common good of our communities through our work. This is tied up to God's purposes of shalom, which we talked about a lot this weekend. It is true that our work is often trying and toilsome and was quite exasperating and not as fulfilling as it is intended to be. But that's not because of working itself. It's part of the damage, the disruption, the, the marring effect that sin has left on our lives. And so we look forward to when God will re-realize shalom on earth. And so it's great to uh, hear a reference to these passages late in the book of Revelation, alluding to when we, we will have see God's realization of the new heaven and the new earth, where shalom will be re-realized. Well, in the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to consider together a short passage in John chapter 10. This is a passage, in fact, where we find one of Jesus' most familiar sayings. I'm sure that you are going to recognize this passage. And we're going to really focus, in fact, on John chapter 10, verse 10. This is where Jesus says that he has come to give us life and that he has come indeed that we may have abundant life. This is a familiar verse, and I want to say right at the outset, we are rightly accustomed to thinking about this passage in connection with, or as a reference to, the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus, as a reference to Jesus' invitation to eternal life in the world to come. And this is, of course, made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. I absolutely think that these ideas are importantly in mind when Jesus talks about his purpose of coming to give us life and indeed life abundant. But what I want us to see this morning is maybe something we can overlook in the passage. What I want us to see this morning is that Jesus' words in John 10, 10 have tremendous application to our lives right here and right now, uh, today in church, the later this afternoon, and whatever it is, the activities that you do, and this week, our, our workaday lives. So with that in mind, I would like to open us in a word of prayer and dig into the passage. Our Father, we have a lot on our minds this week, and our community has a lot on, our, on its plate for this week. And we just are grateful to you for the protection and the promise of life everlasting that we have in the words of Jesus. Pray that now, as we are here together in this sanctuary, that you would set our minds at ease. We don't suspend care and concern for one another, but we do ask that you just help us to find your special peace for the next half hour or so as we consider what Jesus has said and what it means for us, not only for the life to come, but for our lives even today. We're mindful of those who cannot or are not with us uh, this morning uh, in person. We pray for your special blessing on them and your protection and your encouragement and your insight into how we can serve one another in these uh, unique times. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you haven't already, turn to or scroll to uh, in your Bible or tablet. How does Pastor Matt usually acknowledge electronic Bibles? I don't know. I'm not used to it either. Uh, to John chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, and let's just begin in verse 7 where we catch a little bit of important context for the pericope that we want to look at. 
here just hard on the heels of the opening six verses of John chapter 10. Uh, and in those first six verses, Jesus gave actually another similar but distinct uh, parable. Uh, we see in verse 6 that apparently uh, Jesus' audience didn't really get it. They didn't apparently understand what he, what he was trying to communicate. And so in our passage, beginning in verse 7, Jesus begins another, another parable where he is using this uh, interesting imagery of shepherding. Interesting imagery of shepherding. So let's just read this text together. So we'll start in John 10, verse 7. So Jesus said again, I tell you the solemn truth. I am the door for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, I think there's a lot of interesting but potentially sort of confusing uh, uh, ideas in what Jesus has just said. But let's focus on the main thing here, life, this idea of life. Have you ever read the Gospel of John just straight through in one sitting? For most books of the Bible, you could read them straight through in one shot pretty easily, many of them less than a half hour or 40 minutes. Uh, not, not that long at all. I would encourage you, if you haven't ever read the Gospel of John straight through, to maybe just think about spending a little time this afternoon or this week when you're, when you're not going out. Did I just go sign? Okay. Uh, when you're not going out and, and uh, shaking hands and hugging people, uh, just consider reading the Gospel of John straight through. It's beautifully written. It really is. It's, it's suffused throughout with these uh, incredible images of uh, this imagery of life and the imagery of light over and over. In fact, almost every single chapter in the Gospel of John uh, builds on or employs, John uses this imagery of life. It appears, as I say, on almost every chapter, and it starts right up front in John chapter 1, right there in the, the first page, in verse 4, where John says, in him, and him is, is the word, or uh, Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He continues to say, and in, in fact, if you fast forward to the very end of the book in uh, chapter 20 and verse 31, John tells us the, the very reason that he's even written his gospel. And he says, uh, and this is again, chapter 20, verse 31, he's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I, I want to tell you, it's important to read books in their entirety because when we uh, pick and choose snippets just here and there. We do that at the cost, I'm afraid, of, of the important context, as well as the beautiful flow, not only of the, of the ideas, but of the imagery and how John is, is building, painting this beautiful portrait, in fact, with this imagery. Now, between chapters 1 and, chapters tw and chapter 20 in the Gospel of John, we're told repeatedly, I mean over and over and over, that life is to be found in Jesus the Christ. In fact, one of the most famous verses, one of the passages we all memorize as, as little bitties, uh, John 3, uh, 15 and 16 says that whoever believes in him, that is the word, again, Jesus, 
may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So over and over, we're given to think that the ministry of Jesus is connected up with this idea of life. That's one of those verses we memorize as kids, isn't it? But how often have you thought, in what sense, in what sense really, does Jesus mean that he has come to provide life? What does he really mean by life? Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we are accustomed to thinking about life, understanding this as a reference to our salvation. And you know what? It is. It is a reference to our salvation. And we just cannot afford, and what we're going to say in the sequel here, we cannot afford to forget that fact that life does include, it includes a reference to our salvation. Jesus says himself in John chapter 5, verse 24, I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned but has crossed over from death to life. And I think that is pretty straightforwardly a reference to our salvation, forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation with the creator that we have only through Jesus the Christ. I think this is what Jesus means in chapter 10, verse nine, when he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. We find in John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. So it is, there is this important concept connecting with our salvation, and it is evident that this is only, only possible through Jesus. It's an exclusive offer only through Jesus. But these references to salvation with their idea of life in the world to come, marvelous, indescribably good news. Truly, that's what the gospel means, good news. And we do rightly look forward to, we eagerly anticipate the full realization of our life in the world to come. But we are mistaken. We are mistaken when we assume, as I think we unreflectively do sometimes, that the life that Jesus has come to provide is entirely uh, an otherworldly, not yet present reality. I think we tend to do that without realizing it in a lot of important ways. So I grew up in a small, I mean, about a quarter of the size of your church here, small country church in a place called Dry Creek, Louisiana. Don't even bother. I don't even think Google Maps knows about uh, Dry Creek, Louisiana. It's, I mean, it's tiny. Satellites can't find it. At, at Dry Creek Bible Church, from time to time, we would sing uh, an old hymn, very catchy, very catchy, in fact. Uh, it's written in 1936 by a fellow named Albert Brumley, and it goes in part... This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. It's way catchier, but I'm gonna do us all a favor and just read it to you, not, not sing it. But although it's very catchy, I think that the words suggest something a, a little bit um, unhelpful for Christian theology. The idea in the song is that for Christians, our present sort of earthly life, our earthly existence is just temporary, and that the life that we have in Jesus 
is really only bound up with the world to come. And to be sure, in fairness, this song doesn't say, does not say, that our life on earth as believers is entirely worthless or without value. I don't think, I think that would be unfair to the song. But the song clearly does convey belief that our present lives, our present existence, our present work and our workaday lives week after week sort of lack permanence. They lack permanent value. They imply, the words of the song do, that the abundant life which Jesus has come to provide for us is really only to be found later in the world to come. But let's look instead back at what Jesus says. We read that he is the door. We read that he is the shepherd. This is the shepherd through whom, of course, comes life, as we've said. But don't miss what else Jesus says, because this is the part that's easy to miss. Jesus also says that he makes available a few things, green pasture, and indeed, abundant life. How are we to understand those ideas? The only way to fully understand what Jesus is saying is to appreciate the background information that his audience would have had that we often are a little bit uh, unfamiliar with. And that background, the background, the backdrop for this passage is in fact found back in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. So I'm tempted to do a sword drill right here, but uh, Ezekiel's to the left of John. But it's also going to be on the screen if you just want to save yourself a little trouble. So we don't have time to work carefully through this entire passage, but we do need to read a bit of it because apart from reading the passage and recognizing the, the throwbacks that Jesus is consciously making to Ezekiel 34, we're not really going to get what he means by abundant life and green pasture. So let's look in Ezekiel 34. Again, it's going to be on the screen. And I want you to just try to follow this train of thought with me as you, as you read along, scan down the passage, okay? Now, at this point, at the point at which Ezekiel is writing, things were not going too hot for Israel. Uh, Israel uh, is conscious of the fact that they are God's own chosen people. And that just cannot be emphasized enough for how Israel uh, interprets what the prophets had to say. But here we find Israel is in exile, and things are going very poorly. Things are going very poorly. Indeed, much of Israel was now in captivity in uh, Babylon, and Babylon was decidedly not the promised land that they were all anticipating. In the opening six verses of Ezekiel chapter 34, we see some blame getting uh, thrown around for this situation. And in fact, the opening six verses apparently blame their poor situation right squarely on the shoulders of the shepherds. Right on the shoulders of the shepherds. Now, you might be thinking, what did the shepherds have to do with it? I mean, like, those guys are just off in the field, like, leading sheep around to water and stuff. Why are they to blame for the Israel being in captivity? Well, it's important that we acknowledge or just note that in ancient Near Eastern literature, the shepherds is, is sort of a code for the, the political leadership. So they don't mean literally the people with staffs uh, leading sheep around all day on the hillside. That's not literally the shepherds that are being talked about. It's a reference to the political uh, leadership. 
And so when we see that the, the shepherds are being blamed, and in fact, when we, when we read the details that they had failed terribly in their responsibilities to lead God's people, you, you realize, okay, we don't mean f- like farmers type of shepherds here. We mean political leaders. Now, what you need to know again is that this reference is to the failed kings of, in particular, Judah. These are the people who we read have precipitated the exile and the captivity of God's people. So how could God's own people find themselves in a situation? Really bad job, failure of leadership by the political shepherds. Okay, so when Ezekiel 34 and verse 7, and sort of following after verse 7, it is obvious, it is absolutely obvious that the Lord, Yahweh, regards this failure and this, this situation in which his people find themselves, he, he finds this absolutely intolerable. This is not okay to, to the Lord God. The shepherds, or we'll say now the kings, bore the responsibility before God of leading his people, looking after them. And I mean looking after, the, after their immediate, tangible, everyday physical needs their welfare. This was the job of the kings, and they failed to do it. But in Ezekiel 34, fast forwarding now to verses 11 through 16, the Lord declares, Yahweh declares, that things are going to change. This intolerable situation is not going to be allowed to just stand on indefinitely. But what we find out is going to happen is this staggeringly unexpected but magnificent change of affairs. God himself says that he will personally provide and indeed enrich life. And so let's pick up here. I think this is where the screen is going to pick up in verse 34, 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy, dark day. I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from foreign countries. I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. In a good pasture, I will feed them. The mountain heights of Israel will be their pasture. There they will lie down in a lush pasture, and they will feed on rich grass on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. Finally, in verse 16, we read, I will seek the lost and bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the sick. This is breathtaking. But imagine how breathtaking it would be if you're one of the Israelites in captivity. This would have been cause for unprecedented hope, eager, eager anticipation, eager hope. God himself will take over as shepherd, and God himself will look after the people, uh, the lives of his people, in fact. But now, scan down just a little with me to, still in chapter 34, to verses 23 and 24. Here in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, God declares, I will set one shepherd over them, that is, over his people, and he will feed them. 
But then he tells us who it is, namely my servant David. He will feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be head of state among them. He will take over the, the failed role of, uh, sorry, the role in which the former shepherds had failed. And he wraps up, I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, this is a momentous uh, uh, utterance in the context of what we're, what we're explaining here. When, G, uh, when God refers to his servant David, he does not mean literally King David, the, the person we're familiar with from the Old Testament. He means the descendant of David, who of course you will recognize as the Messiah. When, when God refers to his servant David here, who's he talking about? He is talking about Jesus the Messiah, who is a descendant from King David. We're talking about King Jesus. As one terrific Old Testament scholar, uh, a guy named Christopher J.H. Wright, as he explains it, when Jesus himself, back in John chapter 10, our main passage for today, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, it was a claim to be the rightful king of Israel. It was a claim to be the embodiment of God's kingship over his people. So this is really important for us to realize back in John chapter 10, Jesus isn't merely uh, looking around as he talks and saying, okay, what's something I can relate to these people with? Oh, shepherds. He isn't just meaning sort of a, a, a throwaway metaphor of shepherd. He means it in this really rich Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 sense. When he says he is the shepherd of Israel, he means he is the rightful king. But as the rightful king, he has the responsibility of the shepherds, which the Lord God has given to all the political leaders of his people. This realization absolutely has to color in the details of what we think Jesus means in John chapter 10, when he says that he's come so his sheep may have life and may have it abundantly. All right, what does this mean? The good pasture, the protection that Jesus promises in John chapter 10 and verse 9 recalls the good pasture and the provision and the protection that the Lord God promises to his people back in Ezekiel 34. Remember, the people Jesus is talking to are the people, the Israelites, who were in the bondage, the Babylonian captivity back in Ezekiel. They recognize right away what the full import of what Jesus is saying here is. Now finally, just to finish our, our reference back to Ezekiel 34, finally read with me once more verses 25 through 29 in Ezekiel 34. And when we do, I want you in, in, really in this passage and this portion of the passage to focus on, pay attention to the physical, very earthy, tangible nature of the things that God promises. These are not ethereal, otherworldly promises. Chapter 34, verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them and will rid the land of wild beasts so that they can live securely in the wilderness and even sleep in the woods. I will turn them and the regions around my hill into a blessing. I will make showers come down in their season and they will be showers that bring blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the earth will yield its crops. They will live securely on their land. They will know 
that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. Verse 28, they will no longer be prey for the nations, and the wild beast will not devour them. They will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. Finally, I will prepare for them a healthy planting. They will no longer be victims of famine in the land and will no longer bear the insults of the nations. Those are distinctly immediate, right now, day-to-day living promises that God is giving to, uh, uh, to his people through Ezekiel. He doesn't promise them, hey, things are rough right now, gang, but just remember, one day, non, non-physical, ethereal, spiritual blessings. This is, this is stuff he's telling them will, will happen in their lives, their work-a-day, day-to-day existence. They're not vague, far from it. They're quite immediate. They're for life here on earth, pertaining very much, in fact, to the work that the people are attempting to do. And this is the backdrop for, John, uh, for God's uh, words through Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10. I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he means right now, right now. The life, the life that we have in Christ means that we can flourish right here and right now. We don't have to, you know, look forward to heaven for our opportunity finally to flourish. That's not the life that Jesus is offering us. The life that we have in Christ is for right now, and it means right now that we can have genuine relationships with one another, with our neighbors. We can be harmonious. We can live in ordered harmony together before the Lord. It means that the actual work that we do at our various places of employment, the the, the things that we do during the week, right now are infused with a purposiveness that we often neglect because we think that the Christian life is entirely a matter of looking forward to the hereafter. Well, we do look forward to the life to come, but we don't do so at the expense of realizing what the abundant life means for us right now, this afternoon. It makes it possible for us to recognize that the very purpose of our existence, the very thing we're on earth for in the first place, is possible. We can live lives of true meaning and value right now because of this abundant life. So let me tie this to my own personal story a little bit. Uh, back home in, uh, in Louisiana, where I'm from, my dad, uh, Scott Lofton, is an electrical contractor. Uh, dad didn't go to college. He went straight to work uh, pretty quite early and has worked uh, extraordinarily hard uh, his entire adult life. He's been wiring new houses and fixing electrical problems and uh, whatever else electricians do. I'm not, I've never really fully understood it, but I know it involves electricity stuff. He's been doing these things for over like 25 years. He's been at it for a long time. Uh, his company is called Lofton Electric, so if you want to spend a fortune, a fortune to bring him over here, check him out. He's a hard worker. He's, he's a great example for me. But he's also a committed Christian. He's, he's not a pastor. He is not a missionary or a, an evangelist or anything like that. He is an electrician and a small business owner. He has about, I don't know, 20-ish electricians and electricians helpers working for him. Apart from the life available to him through Christ, everything that Dad does through Lofton Electric 
would really be nothing more than a paycheck, would just be a means to an end of paying his mortgage, paying for car insurance, uh, by buying his grandson's stuff, which he enjoys to do. Um, but it would mean that his work is not valuable in and of itself. If there, were, if there were no abundant life available in Christ, it would be just a job. But because of his life in Christ, my dad's work is uh, different. And I don't mean that he has access to like special Christian-only ceiling fans <laughs> or that he, uh, he has some top-secret way of wiring up electrical outlets or, or, or three-way switches that only Christian electricians know about. It's, it's not that at all. And in fact, that's not what being a Christian electrician really means. And it doesn't just mean that my dad is an honest, uh, an honest employer uh, who doesn't overcharge people and take advantage. He doesn't do those things, as far as I know. But that's not really all it means to be a Christian electrician either. It means that, uh, what I mean here is that his work and his community has a purpose and a significance because we, it's done in connection with the shalom, the, the reason for, uh, let me put this better, it's connected up with God's purposes for us on earth, that we would live together in ordered harmony. What he does contributes to the common good in in very important ways. And why is this? Because he's created in the image of the divine worker that we meet in Genesis chapter 1. And right there in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we find out that we are created in the image of a worker. Now, not only is dad's work itself a blessing from God, but through his work, he is able to bless others. He's able to provide employment for people uh, so that they can take care of their families and look after their material needs and so forth. So through his work, dad is able to care and share with others the abundant life that he has in Christ. And that is a really magnificent, although often overlooked, factor in being a Christian right now. If you're a believer, if you know the Lord Jesus, if you've accepted the gospel, you're recipient, a recipient of this eternal, abundant life that's available in Jesus. But maybe if you're that person, you've always thought of your salvation exclusively, really, in terms of the world to come. And I don't want you to lose sight of that. We need to keep one eye on the future, eagerly anticipating the Lord's return. But I want you to think about this, that the significance of your activities beyond worshiping together as a community of believers here at Wiley Baptist, beyond your personal devotional life, things that are very important. But your Monday through Friday lives aren't just times when you're treading water as a believer in the world. You are connected up to and contributing to God's purposes for the world Monday through Friday. There's important, distinctly Christian ways that each of us in our various spheres of influence and in our various professional outlets are to exhibit Christ-like character, yes, but engage in God's purposes for the world in tangible and immediate ways. So if that's you, if this morning you have not so far really thought about your work, your work-a-day life this way, if you haven't thought about the abundant life that Jesus talks about as being a reference inclusive of your work-a-day lives, then I want you to know this that because of the gospel, you can flourish 
right now. What, what does this mean? Men and women flourish when they live the lives that God intends for them to live. Uh, the idea is that just as an orange tree flourishes when it produces oranges, and a mango tree, tree, bush? We don't have mangoes in Texas. I think, I think it's trees. Anyway, just as a mango tree flourishes when it produces mangoes, so human beings flourish when we, when our lives reflect or fulfill the purposes that God intends for them. The problem, of course, is that on our own, we have no hope of doing that. We, we can't. We can't flourish on our own. It'd be like pulling an orange tree out of the ground and, and then expecting it to continue to produce oranges. That's silly. It's nonsense. It doesn't work that way. And this is obvious, I think, from our experience with sin in the aftermath of Genesis chapter 3. But it's clear in the pages of Scripture that sin has disrupted everything. We're estranged from our Creator. Our relationships with one another are stilted and disruptive. Our, our inner lives are disordered. We don't relate to the rest of creation the way that we're supposed to. In short, things are not the way they're supposed to be right now. And that means we can't flourish on our own. Our lives, in, in other words, are just shot through with the consequences of sin. They're, they're, nothing has escaped the stain of sin, including our work. And even as those, the redeemed in Christ, we often struggle to bring our day-to-day, -day, our work-a-day lives and activities and purposes into line with the purposes of, of God. We have a hard time with that. We often struggle with seeing how our, our earthly lives right now, our ordinary lives, including our work, we have a hard time seeing how those things participate in God's purposes. It's easy to slip into this mold of thinking. We're connected up with God in a special way at church, but then during the week, we sort of slide back into survival mode instead of being active participant mode in the Christian life. And that's not the idea of abundant life that Jesus came to provide, provide us with. In Christ, our work and our working, our, our work lives also are themselves redeemed. They're saved. Our work doesn't, does not, of course, save us, but rather as, as part of our lives, which are themselves uh, made new in Christ, so our workaday lives are redeemed by Christ. The work, that you, the work that we do, the work that you do, even if you're not a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or whatever, if you're a construction worker, uh, I think in the coming weeks we're going to start recognizing the value to our community of a lot of people who get overlooked a lot, uh, healthcare workers, uh, the people that pick up the garbage on your street each week. Uh, the, the, I was thinking about uh, as we were leaving the hotel this morning, a lady had a, a, a rag and a squirt bottle of cleaner and was uh, once again cleaning all the door handles going in and out of our hotel. So easy for us to overlook these important jobs. But it's about to be really evident, I think, how important these are as a contribution to our common good. And it's because our work really matters to God. So as we close here, I want to leave you with this thought. The work that you do is, again, it's meaningful to God. In Christ, in Christ, there is no such thing as mundane. There's no ho-hum, humdrum element of your life. There's no part of your life that is not sacred. God cares a whole lot about the parts of our life that we often overlook. The promise of life eternal, the, the promise of abundant life, 
is something we look forward to in the hereafter. Our post-resurrection experience includes the kind of life that we lead, but it will so far surpass it. But we shouldn't, in looking forward to that, overlook what the life abundant means for us right now. That reality is humbling, but it's also exhilarating, I think. It infuses our weekly lives with excitement. And that's the reality of the life, the abundant life, that Jesus came to provide.